everyone. This is Ada. We have a bonus episode for you this week. It's a little departure from our season, but last week was the San Diego Asian Film Festival Spring Showcase, which Brian programs, and we wanted you to know about one of the films that played there. Bing Liu's documentary, Minding the Gap, where he follows a couple of his skateboarding friends, and they bond over their challenging relationships with their fathers. You know, my parents ran this very controlling house, and so I ran away a lot. By like 16, I was no longer living with my parents, like at all. I just wanted to fucking skate. We really recommend it. The film won an award at Sundance earlier this year for breakthrough filmmaking. You ready for some fucking intense action? Take one. And even though we at Saturday School usually focus on older films, it kind of fits because Minding the Gap is about looking back on the past and seeing what we can learn from it. Stop filming and he's going to crash. Minding the Gap will be playing at the Los Angeles Asian Film Festival on Saturday, May 5th. But since they're on the festival tour, it's very likely they're coming to a film festival near you. We don't want to give too much away, but here is a taste of what inspired the film in our interview with Bing Liu and producer Diane Kwan. I'm Brian Hu. I'm Ada Singh. And welcome to Saturday School. When your friends are watching Saturday morning cartoons, you're being forced to learn Asian American pop culture history. Welcome back to Saturday School, everyone. Today is a special episode. We're recording from the San Diego Asian Film Festival Spring Showcase. And we have two special guests. Yeah, we have with us Bing Liu, who is the director and one of the subjects of the new documentary, Mining the Gap, which won a special jury prize at Sundance this year and which is currently making the festival rounds. And we also have producer Diane Kwan, who produced Money in the Gap, but is also a director uh, of her own. And we've screened her shorts in the past at our festival. Welcome. Thank you. Yeah, great to be here. Can you start by describing where you grew up and how you got into either skateboarding or filmmaking, whether one came first or the other? Yeah, so um, I sort of moved around a lot when I was a kid. I was born in China. And then when I was five, I moved to Alabama with my mom and dad, and uh, my parents got divorced pretty shortly after that, so we moved to L.A. for a while because my mom got an offer for a restaurant job there, and we stayed in L.A. for a year, and then we moved to Illinois after that to a city called Rockford, which is where Mining the Gap takes place. We moved there when I was eight, and then um, I think when I was 12 or something, I started skateboarding. And then when I was 14, I broke my arm um, pretty badly to the point where I had a, an above-the-elbow cast. And while I was sort of recovering from that, I, I still wanted to sort of go out and be out with my skateboarding um, community. And so I, I saved a bunch of lunch money and basically got like a soccer mom camera <laughs> off of eBay, which is, you know, eBay was sort of new at the time. And so um, I just started wanting to make skate videos and uh, I fell in love with that almost as much as I had uh, fallen in love with skateboarding when I first started skateboarding. Through that, I uh, you know linked up with other people who were making skate videos, like in the Chicago suburbs and stuff, and we really pushed each other to um, 
I guess not. I, I mean, like YouTube didn't really exist when we were coming up, so it wasn't like you know we were just filming things and putting them on the internet. There was sort of this craft and discipline to skate videos. Like we had favorite skate video makers, and then eventually I joined a forum online that was meant just for skate media makers, and we like pushed each other to learn more about cinematography and editing. And it's sort of like a mini film school in a way. Um, and then so I started experimenting with things uh, both in the skate videos I was making. I started trying to push the boundaries of what skate videos were, which I feel like people like Spike Jones at the time were doing as well. Um, and then I started making, you know, experimenting short films and stuff outside of skate videos. And then I went to community college and took a couple of production courses at Rock Valley Community College in Rockford. And then I moved to Chicago and went to school for literature. And while I was going to school, I, um, I got a job as a production assistant. And I was like, oh, I can get paid like to do this stuff? Even though it was like $50 a day, it was still sort of this mind-opening thing. And then I quickly became a grip and then an electrician. And then I became a camera assistant and I joined the camera union and did that for many years. Um, and then that's sort of what helped pay the bills while I was starting and doing Mind in the Gap. You mentioned Spike Jones, but what were the other um, skateboard video makers that you mentioned that you're influenced by? Yeah, I mean, Ty Evans was doing a lot of work. I mean, now he, like, films, like, these million-dollar skate videos, uh, like, pretty sweet uh, and fully flared. Um, but there was there were filmers there was a filmmaker a, a skate video maker named uh, Jason Hernandez who filmed a lot of Transworld videos and he was making these really artsy videos that were sort of a response to like I, I guess like Jackass or CKY which is like more of this like aggro male antics sort of thing that was happening in skateboarding um, but um, Jason Hernandez and John Holland his filming partner they were making these like really artsy videos and they would do things like you know interview the skateboarders that were in them and like you know get a little bit of their inner life and their sort of philosophies almost and I remember that like directly being an influence on me because I experimented with that when I was growing up how were you seeing these videos if they weren't on YouTube uh VHS's skate shops you go to skate shops and like they'd have VHS's of them and they'd be playing them sometimes you know somebody would get like a VHS and I would like get it and like dub it you know like dub a VHS and have like a crappy quality and I would just like keep watching those VHS's and then, you know, I would, like, get digital files once, like, torrents and stuff were getting big. And was there ever any aspiration for you to start getting your own work out there, like, with the, the kinds of projects you were working on? Yeah, I mean, I never had the idea that I would, like, make a living doing it, but I certainly wanted to be recognized for it. And so, you know, it pushed me to sort of take it seriously. Once... I started getting this stuff out on the forum, my work in the forum, like, you know, we would, it'd be a community that would reward itself as like a mini film festival in a, in a way, um, because we would put out challenges to, you know, film the best like night, you know, long lens handrail shot. There'd be like these little gold, silver and bronze like camera trophies that we could put in our signatures. And so, you know, it was, it was like its own little community and, and I wanted to, and it, it pushed me, so. Yes, not just a film school, but like a, there's, there's like a whole curriculum it seems like all the things that the levels that you have to attain yeah I mean I never had any formal films I mean besides a, you know a couple production classes uh, in community college but yeah it was very much like a DIY I mean the skate videos and skate video makers come from a DIY sort of aesthetic you're just doing it you know you just go out and do it there's not a, that much theory besides like what besides the court of public opinion in a way there's also some kind of, uh, kind of physical requirements. I mean, you're on a skateboard or you're 
finding a way to follow them. I'm just curious, um, what, what are the attributes of a good skate video maker that might be different from any other, some other kind of filmmaking? Uh, well, I mean, it's, it's generally the same thing as other filmmaking in terms of like technical, you know, like getting things in focus and getting things like well-framed and having the editing and pacing feel good. But there's a certain aspect of skate videos that is related to skateboarding too in that um, newness and freshness and creativity and seeing something that's never been done before, like that is like the golden nugget that everyone's trying to sort of reach for. And so people would like try all sorts of things and sometimes they'd be, they would work, um, sometimes they wouldn't, but it, it breeded a lot of experimentation. Is there a tradition of a more personal storytelling within the skate video genre? Uh, yeah, I mean, there's certainly like skate docs that have come out, but it's not, it's, it's, almost, it's almost like a third rail in a way because there's so many, there's so much skate media that's like made fun of because it's like just so off the mark in terms of you know trying to get at what skateboarders experience. It's just hard to sort of like be an outsider and tell the story of an inside, you know, inside the skate community. The one thing I'll say, I mean, I, I think they, they all needed to sort of, they all needed therapy. <laughs> uh, and they didn't know it. And, you know, like we never acknowledged it, you know, until, there, I mean, there's a moment in the film that sort of acknowledges it later. But um, I think that's why they opened up too, is they wanted to talk. We had been reading in your previous interviews that Mining Lip Gap sort of started as an experimental skate video. So can you talk about what you were making at the time and how it evolved? Um, when I was in my early 20s, I made a... I guess an experimental skate documentary called Look At Me. And I just went around and I interviewed skateboard filmers and photographers about what does it mean to be a skateboard photographer and video maker. I mean, what does it mean to be like the one always filming and not really participating, but like you're part of it and you're like watching, but you're like off to the side and you're not as engaged. I mean, like it was it was kind of heady and, and philosophical, but it was mixed with like skateboarding as well. But there was also this one part of it where people like talked about how they were going through a dark time in their life and uh you know skateboard video making helped them you know help them take control of their lives and so i feel like that was a nugget that i sort of um held on to so my thought in my head was like well for the next project what if we go deeper into that into that realm of what skateboarders are experiencing in their lives outside off the skateboard um so i just i i, I was uh a few years into working in the union and I like been saving some money. So I took a trip around the United States and I interviewed skateboarders of all races, ages and genders. People I'd either like met in the past or like friends of friends. And it, it turned into sort of a pseudo therapy session and people talked about all kinds of things that I felt like we all felt but like and I wanted to sort of engage with but I never felt like there was a safe space for us to talk about it so I felt like we were creating the safe space with these interviews and I would sort of mix that with um, skateboarding and it was also when I was experimenting with the way that I ultimately that I filmed skateboarding in Mining the Gap which is um, just running with a glide cam at eye level so that you know you get the feeling of what it's like to be on a skateboard rather than the feeling of glorifying tricks and being made to watch that uh, so that's that's sort of how the project started. And with Zach and Kira, that who are the subjects of Men in the Gap? Were they amongst the original interviewees? Not for the first couple of years. For the first couple of years, it was a survey film with not Zach and Kira. Um, but then I did a fellowship with Cartempquin in Chicago, and uh, they sort of they're most known for the film called Hoop Dreams. Um, so I watched a lot of their verite films and I realized, you know, like documentaries can be these stories where you can just follow characters and, you know, you watch what happens in their lives. And um, 
issues can come out organically from that. So that's when I tried a different approach, but I couldn't go back to like Portland or Florida all the time to follow up with these people. So out of expediency, I went back to Rockford, interviewed a bunch of people, and Kier and I connected right away. I mean, there's a scene in the film where we commiserate about how our fathers treated us, and that was like our first or second interview, and it was a really long conversation. So I just saw a lot of myself in the way that he struggled with what happened in the past. Like, it's not a simple thing for him. Um, So I knew there was more to unpack there. With Zach, I mean, that was a friend of Kier's who uh, was about to become a father. So it just seemed like a trackable story. And, you know, of course, in the film, you see the the story sort of unfold in this really roller coaster ride that I didn't anticipate. But the access that I had was due to, you know, us knowing each other growing up. So, yeah. I mean, that makes the film, I think, the access and the roller coaster journey. Yeah, yeah. That's a good so, segue to Diane. Can you talk about how you became involved in the film? Like, what part of the process was he in when you guys got involved? Yeah, um, so Bing was talking about Kurt Temkin Films in Chicago, which is a, a wonderful social justice documentary production company. And often they would have these uh, labs where people can come in. Kurt Temkin projects like Bing's can show a rough cut or people that aren't connected with Cartemquin can bring in their projects and have folks come in and comment on it. And often it's really hard to hear it, but most of the time it's really constructive and helpful. And so Bing, two years ago, had a a rough cut screening, and I was there, and I just was so impressed with what he had already done in those. And he was a one-man show. He directed did sound, you know, shoots, skateboards, and edits, and does it all. And so I just reached out to him to see if he needed any help when we started writing grants together, and then we decided to work together, and it's just been great um, working with Bing. And I think we both definitely believed in the film, but to see where it's gone, it's just been we're so grateful for the response. Definitely, they're really heavy issues, but there's also the light moments where you feel like they're your friends and it's just have that hu- such a human quality and emotional connection. Yeah, I like just feeling like I'm hanging out with the characters. Yeah, and definitely, I did a little skateboarding, believe it or not, when I was young. <laughs> um, but what touched me was uh, our sound mixer uh, designer, Jim Bram, who's a wonderful sound person. He unfortunately has never been able to skateboard he's in a wheelchair and he said when he saw Bing's film it was the closest he said to feeling like he really he's skateboarding but that speaks to how Bing shoots like you said it's not about the tricks it's about feeling like you're right there with him so at that point when um Kotempin got involved did you reshoot a lot of it or was it you, were you using the footage that you had already or is it all kind of new after that so Kurtemkwin has this fellowship called Diverse Voices in Documentary. It's for uh, documentary filmmakers of color, um, not just in the Midwest, but for the first few years they pulled a lot from the Midwest because you have to sort of be in Chicago for these sessions. And they're basically like four-hour sessions every month for six months. And um, each session, uh, they want filmmakers with projects that are in progress that they're making already, and they just basically want to you know help it grow and help it sort of reach its full potential um so what i brought to them was was a survey film you know an assembly cut of like a survey film of interviews and skateboarding in a way and uh yeah i mean i, I didn't really let go of that right away um like zach and kier kier first but zach and kier ultimately just sort of 
became more and more part of every rough cut that I would make. I mean, I must have made like hundreds of rough cuts over the years. And then over time, you know, people just sort of like floated away as the film eventually became a film primarily about Zach and Kier. And then when did you float into the picture? Because you become sort of a critical third subject in the film. Yeah, I mean, I certainly, I mean, the way that I would edit even from the beginning, it was sometimes I'd leave my question in, you know, I think making skate videos growing up, uh, there's sort of like documentaries, but what's different about them is like there's no sense of fourth wall and there doesn't really need to be. And so I really liked that about skate videos. So I like left questions in and sometimes left interactions in. Um, but a couple of years ago, Dan and I went up to... Uh, a screening in New York. And um, so some, some of those moments were in there, including that moment that I mentioned earlier about Kier and I commiserating. And I wasn't in the film at all at this point. But um, afterwards, you know, somebody asked, like, how did I find the story? And I was like, well, I grew up with them and I skateboard. I went through similar issues that they went through. And uh, I have all this, you know, footage of them from when we were younger. And this person was like, have you thought about being in the film? And by that point, I'd watched Steve James, one of the EPs. I just watched him do a rough cut like screening for the first time. And he does this thing where he like does a straw poll where someone says something and it's like he doesn't know quite how he feels about it. So I'll ask the rest of the room who agrees with that statement. So I did that. You know, I was like, does everybody like is everybody curious about me like possibly entering the film and everybody raised their hands. So um, I was like, OK. <laughs> <laughs> So that definitely meant new footage. And also looking for old footage. So can you kind of elaborate on that? Because for Saturday School, though, it's, you know, our podcast is all about looking into, like, work from the past. So you going back and looking at the old videos that you shot when you were a teenager, what was that like? Yeah, most of it when I was a teenager from the ages of, like, 14 to 19. Um, it was... It was a trip to sort of relive all those things but at the same time like now with more perspective I mean I'm 29 now um, and we didn't I didn't really like go through that footage until like the last few months of editing so it was like last summer so you know with perspective it's like yeah you're reliving some of this stuff but you're also remembering um, some of the things in childhood that were happening like outside of like those moments you know like it brings you back to that place um, so it was you know I'm, I'm not sure I was like seeing a therapist at the time so it's probably helped dredge up things for me in those sessions and doing that work but it, it was sort of surprising I mean there was things I just didn't even realize that I had I mean I didn't really know Kier growing up in the same sense I knew Zach I mean Kier's like almost nine eight or nine years younger than me and Zach's a couple years younger than me there's this scene in the film that's sort of just you just sort of live with Kier in this moment when he's a little kid at the skate park and I didn't realize that was him until I until last summer where I was going through footage and I was like oh my god I think this is Kier and I sent it to a mutual friend of ours and he confirmed and so I was like wow like yeah. this is uh this is crazy that I was just like filming this kid just because he was like doing something at the skate park but you know I didn't realize that years later I'd be making a film about him. When you first started filming them what were their expectations of it. Did they just think he's my friend, he's a filmmaker, sure, I'll talk about my life? I mean, I, first of all, I think skateboarders have a unique relationship with skate videographers because skate videographers give skateboarding meaning. I think skateboarding and its culture can't really exist without skate videos. That's where the culture of skateboarding is created. I mean, there's no, like, Super Bowl for skateboarding. I mean, now there's the Olympics and X Games and everything, but to a certain extent, only a certain amount of skateboarders pay attention to that stuff, and it doesn't have as much authority as, you know, the Super Bowl or um, the NBA championships does. And so skate videos are where culture lives. And when we were growing up, there wasn't a lot of skate videographers in Rockford 
taking it seriously. So people wanted to be filmed by me. And once I moved out of Rockford, they continued to pay attention to the work I was creating, including that last project. Um, so they knew from me just having gone around the country for a couple of years and like creating a Facebook page and having done this Cartempoin Fellowship, I was making some sort of project that had to do with skateboarders and their relationships with their fathers. Um, and if they didn't know, they knew the first time we filmed together when I asked them about their <laughs> fathers. Uh, but I mean, they were, I, I think to some extent, they were just really excited that I was, that my cameras honed in on them. Um, was it pretty early that you realized you wanted to zone in on relationship with fathers and father figures? Yeah, that was pretty much from the beginning. I mean, that was the, when I went around the country and did that survey film, that was one of the questions I would always ask. Or if it wasn't that question about, like, what was your relationship with your father? It was, you know, questions related to growing up and child development. You know, like, how did you learn how to love? Like, I remember asking that a lot. Um, how did you learn how to hate? Um, who do you love more, your mom or your dad? I mean, those are the types of questions I would consistently go back to to get people like really sort of in that area of talking about their upbringing. Um, so yeah, I was always in the ether, yeah. So Nina is Zach's girlfriend in the film. Was it hard to get her to open up given that you were close with Zach? Uh, no, I mean, I could see why one could think like there'd be like side taking or something in the film, but th- there really wasn't. I mean, she very much is someone who needed therapy too and so she was very open to talking and you know having her voice heard and also being able to I think it helped her sort of like work out some things in her head um but at one point on camera this isn't in the film but I tell her on camera like how do you feel about being a main character in the film now and she was like I I didn't realize I was and but I think from that moment on she realized like this is her story too and her side of the story is going to be told I think without doubt, one of the most powerful moments in the film is when your mom makes an appearance, like a very important appearance. Um, What was her involvement with the project or her knowledge of the project before she stepped into the interview room with you? Uh, I mean, my mom... My mom and I didn't really see a lot of each other growing up. She was always working like second or third shift. And then in my teenage years, I was out of the house as much as possible. And I like left Rockford as soon as possible. We didn't keep too much in close contact. But she knew like growing up, I was always doing projects, you know. And so she thought this was just another project. And, so, you know, in the same, it's not like I, I thought it was going to be that big of a project either, you know. But, um, I, yeah, I mean, I just called her up and I was like, hey, I'm working on this documentary can I interview you for it? And she said, yeah. I mean, that was that was the whole setup. I love that moment when you're interviewing your brother and he keeps referring to you in the third person. And uh, you correct him. You say, you can talk to me, but you know me. And like, like can, you t- can you talk about that moment and why you decided to keep that bit of self-reflectiveness in? Well, self-reflectiveness is a big tool for my character in the film. I mean... I think it goes back to us trying to figure out how to put me in the film. Um, in some ways, it was a little bit more direct at first. Like, I would do voiceover and, like, show photos of me growing up, you know, near the beginning of the film. And it didn't really quite work. But uh, I had seen a film called Sherman's March, which was this cult film in the 80s where this one-man band filmmaker is always behind the camera because he's the only crew. And he's uh, just, he leaves his interactions in there, and it's, like, part of the story. And I was like, oh, that's really interesting. And it's like really endearing too. And it's, you know, it builds up the character of the filmmaker as well. And then when I started working with my co-editor, Josh Altman, you know, he had sort of suggested something similar. Like what if my character is a, and my story is a puzzle that the audience just puts together over time and it's in the background and becomes, you know, more important later. Um, so that moment was a result of that sort of strategy. Um, but also it was a moment of lightness in this 
pretty you know, pretty somber and dark scene. And that, that's something we do throughout too, is, you know, like we feel like it's important to have a holistic emotional palette um, for issues like violence in the home. Um, Cause oftentimes it's not, you know, it's like all somber. So, and, and that's not the experience of people who survive or, li- or are living with violence in the home. You know, it's, it's not just all somber. It's like this holistic emotional palette. So. Sometimes even in the very light moments is when you, you can see the, sort of the cracks. And one of those moments for me is when you're all hanging out and then Kira, who's black, his race becomes part of the conversation. Uh, I'm, I'm curious, like, you're being Asian. Was that ever uh, foregrounded amongst your, your group of friends? Uh, I mean, it, it was in this, I mean, it, it was and it wasn't. I mean, there wasn't a big Asian American community in Rockford. And at one point I was sort of trying to toy with that in terms of, um, you know, my stepfather had certain feelings about race, but it, ultimately I felt like it was enough for my story to be told through Kier in terms of how he has to navigate these two worlds, how he has to code switch. I mean, certainly I, I never had to deal with any, some of the things that Kier had to deal with in terms of, you know, dealing with the police or this more overt racism. But, I, I, you know, I grew up getting called names. I grew up, like, sort of having shame about being Asian. A lot of these, like, very classic sort of Asian-American, like, coming-of-age um, uh, experiences. And so that certainly, you know, shaped how I saw Kier when he was experiencing, you know, trying to, trying to find his racial identity. So. Do you find that skateboarders all around the world have certain connections and sensibility? I wouldn't say it's I wouldn't say it's uh, it's categorically that way. There's certainly a lot of skateboarders that I grew up with that I know now that come from great families that have a great support network um, that are you know great fathers and mothers themselves. Um, but I, I think there is something to there's I don't know if it's a symptom or the cause. You know, there's something to skateboarding that uh, yeah. I, I mean, it really produces an ad hoc family. One of the things that the film suggests is that it has something to do with pain, like the physical feeling of pain tied to a sort of emotional experience with pain. Yeah, I did this panel on masculinity yesterday, two days ago in Sarasota, Florida, and we were trying to find like traditional like hegemonic masculinity. And um, a lot of it has to do with control, you know, the feeling of you know being in control. That's, that's uh, as a man, that's the role that we perform um, but it's so, so I think skateboarding sort of reinvents the wheel of control for young people. You know, I think there's a lot in young people's lives that they often can't control, um, whether that be, you know, having violence in the home or, you know, not being able to control like what your skin color is. But with skateboarding, I mean, it's just, it's the law of physics, you know, like that's something that's expected. It's also a thing that in a way you can control pain because if you fall, it's nobody's fault but your own. Um, but outside of skateboarding, that could not be true. You know, you could feel pain or, you know, whether that's emotional pain or physical pain. I um, mean, it could be beyond your control, whether it's like being bullied or, you know, again, seeing violence in the home. Um, you know, that's something you can't control. So, yeah, there's something about control there. Is filmmaking also a kind of control for you? Yeah, I mean, you know, the classic, there's a classic, like, stereotype of, like, directors, like, being control freaks. Um, yeah, it definitely feels good to have a story that where you can control it, you know. Yeah, because life is so, can seem so chaotic sometimes. Is it a little bit different as a documentary filmmaker, though? Because I guess in the very end, you can control it, but you're chasing or following stuff. I mean, Steve James says that you rarely find 
you know, excuse my language, but assholes in, in documentary because in the fiction world, like you can, you have this, a lot of people where, you know, they can treat people like crap, but people just give them a pass and say like, oh, they're just an artist, you know, it's fine. Like they're, they're just, just give them a pass. But in documentary, it's like built on relationships and, <laughs> you know, and access through relationships. So, you know, I feel like if you're not empathetic or a people person to some extent, then I don't think you'll survive long in documentary. <laughs> yeah, they'll stop talking to you. <laughs> <laughs> or, the, or the trust just won't be there at all. Sorry, can you talk a little about your um, Steve James's involvement? What kind of influences him and his filmmaking had on you? Uh, I mean, certainly one of my favorite films I've seen of Steve's is a film called Stevie. I mean, it's a film where he goes and visits his uh, someone who he was a mentor to in like a younger brother, older brother, like mentorship program when he was in college down in southern Illinois. And uh, he didn't intend to be in the film, but ultimately he was in the film in a major way. And it's about his relationship with this very troubled man. And it reminded me of, you know, me and Zach. But in terms of you know how he influenced me in any direct way it was mostly because he hired me to be a segment director on his colossal 10-hour miniseries where we followed 12 high school students over the course of an academic year so yeah it was more like watching him and how he works and just being around him a lot I guess um later on you know I felt comfortable enough to be able to sort of ask him specific questions like you know one of the things that we did was we showed the the participants in the film um the, the film before we picture locked. And that's something that Kratemkin generally does with their films because you know, we feel like it's an ethical move when they've given so much of their lives to the project. But so I asked him like what his experiences were like showing his, his participants in his films. And so he gave me a couple examples. So what was it like showing Zach and Nina the film first time? Um, Zach was Zach was crying at the end. He, yeah, I mean, he and he really opened up in the same way that he does in sort of his climactic interview in the film. And that was the only other time he's opened up to me to that extent in person. Um, I think since then he's felt more comfortable just sort of reaching out when he's feeling, you know, down or troubled. I think that's a big step for him. That's that's a lot of emotional growth. Um, Nina sort of like sat through a relationship that she was troubled by so it was really really hard for her so we had to take some time so Diane and uh, we had a consulting producer Maggie Bowman and I were all there for Nina and we just talked about it for a while afterwards I mean Kier so emotionally uh, wears his heart in his sleeves so every time he'd cry or laugh on screen he would simultaneously cry or laugh in person so it's like watching this mirror on this couch next to me every time he watches it he goes to the, this. <laughs> so Diane, on the Kartemquin side, I mean, he's dealing with, I mean, in some ways he's becoming a therapist. That's a kind of a burden, but it's also a kind of a heavy responsibility. Did you feel like you ever had to step in and say, this is something that's very sensitive? Well, I wasn't really with Bing during the interviews. I think we talk about it a lot now, because now that the film is out there, we're always being sensitive to the folks in our documentary. You know, the life, unlike fiction, it's not like a happy ending and then you know that life goes on. Here, life is still happening for Bing, Kieran, Zach, and um, so we often talk about what can we do to support our characters and make sure that we're doing everything to help them to keep moving on, to help them stay healthy, you know, emotionally and physically. So I think that's something that we talk about a lot now. Okay. What are some strategies for that? It's hard. Um, I think being the fact that he went to therapy 
and willing to talk about that, I think that is really a great model for the other characters. And, you know, all we can do is keep offering resources and ideas and just being there. I mean, Bing is such a good friend to them. I think that's probably the best strategy is just always being there as a friend uh, to help in any way possible. And I'm trying to as well. I really care about the guys and Nina because I really feel they're so brave to be willing to share their story. And, and the response has been amazing that so many people feel like what they're saying is how I'm feeling and the, their willingness to make this public and uh, talk about it. People have been sharing things with us that they haven't shared with other folks. So it's been really meaningful to us to see that happen. So I'm sure listeners are excited to know more about how they can watch the film. And usually the films we talk about are on DVD or at a library somewhere. But how can people watch Money in the Gap now? Well, right now we're in the middle of our festival run. I think April and May alone we're in almost 35 to 40 festivals across the country. So the best way to find uh, where we're going to be is through our website, miningthegapfilm.com. And as you mentioned, we're going to be at LA Asian Pacific Film Festival and CAM soon. So we're looking forward to that. Do you want to ask anything else about the film? Um, I know it's kind of a cheesy question, but when you think back on your older self at the skate park filming all your friends, or for other kids that are watching the film that might be teenagers or at that point in their lives, what would you want to tell them? Uh, So one of the songs that we licensed for the film was by this band called The Mountain Goats, and it's a song called uh, This Year, and it's from an album called The Sunset Tree. And The Sunset Tree was released in 2007, I think. So I was graduating high school. But it was a very influential album for me because the whole album is about him growing up with an abusive stepfather and like what that was like. Uh, but in the album sleeve, he writes, this is for every child who is living through violence. And this is to let you know that you will not only survive, but live to tell your tale. So that's, you know, I feel like if I, like if, 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 yeah, if this film had an album cover, we'd probably steal, <laughs> be like, quote, John Darnell, quote, Bing Liu. Yeah. Ditto. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Saturday School is a proud member of Potluck, a collective of podcasts that features stories and voices from the Asian American community. It's produced by me and Brian. Our theme song is courtesy of Rimsky Music and Premium Beat. Check out our new website at SaturdaySchoolPodcast.com where you can find lecture notes and links to all the films we covered. Or you can tweet us. I'm at Ada Singh, A-D-A-T-S-E-N-G. Brian's at Who's Brian, H-U-S-B-R-I-A-N. And our podcast handle is Wake Up Set School. A girl named Kathy wants a little of my time. Class dismissed. Six, seven,